0: For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So far our reading of God's word. brothers and sisters, what makes for a really great leader? Is it charisma? Is it someone that you're just naturally drawn to and want to listen to? Or is it confidence? It's someone who presents themselves well and always seems to know what to do and what to say. Or maybe it's communication. It's someone who gets you, can resonate with you. Someone who can present ideas and roles and expectations clearly and get you to buy into them. Uh, I was reading about leadership this past week, and one author makes a really great point. A leader can have all of these things and more, but it can all be absolutely worthless. If the so-called leader, whether it be a parent or an office bearer or a businessman, if this so-called leader lacks one other thing, if this other so-called leader doesn't know where they're leading you. If someone doesn't have a destination or a goal in mind, and they don't have any clear idea of what steps to take to get there, then how can they possibly lead themselves, let alone lead anybody else? Charles Swindle, a well-known preacher, says that he fears many Christian leaders, uh, whether, if you ask them whether or where they were leading their family or their church or their business, they would have to say, if they were being perfectly honest, I don't really know, but we're making great time. Well, in our passage for today, Jesus is continuing to lead up, or raise up leaders for his church. And there's a real risk of this problem here because we just read a huge turning point in the whole gospel of Mark. Peter and the other disciples, they, they finally recognize the identity of Jesus. They realize he's the Messiah. He's the one who was sent to lead them back to God. But while Jesus has a clear picture of what that means, the destination and how to get there, the disciples at this point have no clue. They have no idea. As Jesus continues to equip them, he allows them and us in this passage to get a glimpse, to behold the Lord of glory, give us a glimpse of where we're going and how to get there. And so we'll explore this in two points. First, we'll get a glimpse of his glory. And secondly, we'll see the cost of his glory. So first of all, a glimpse of glory. Again, this is the tur- a turning point in the gospel of Mark. Uh, up to this point, Jesus had been revealing his identity uh, through his preaching and his teaching and miracles. And finally, in Mark 8, right before our passage, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Uh, some others say that he's one of the prophets. Okay, Jesus says. But the real question is, who do you say that I am? This is an important question for each and every one of us. And it's especially an important question for the disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, Peter pipes up and he answers the question as he so often does. And in this instance, he he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Remember, it means the anointed one the one promised from long ago, the one who God promised from the very beginning, the one who can save us from our enemies and bring us back to God. You're the Savior we've all been waiting for. And Jesus tells him he's right. By God's grace, they've come to know his identity. He is the Messiah. But he's not the Messiah they've been waiting for. Not exactly. They were waiting for a Messiah, but not the right Messiah. Messiah. Jesus knew they were expecting a glorious earthly leader, one who would powerfully deliver them from oppression, the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus tells them the road he's going down and the road he's going to lead them on as well and they're going to lead others on as well could not be more different. In Mark 8 verse 31, he tells them that he, the true Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this to them plainly mark says after hearing this as we read uh peter takes jesus the long-awaited savior of our souls uh, of sinners he takes him aside and peter rebukes him he says jesus this doesn't have to happen jesus this will never happen You don't need to die. You you won't die. And Jesus rebukes him back with one of the harshest rebukes in all of Scripture. Jesus says to one of the future great leaders of the church, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is dead serious here. He's insistent. No, Peter, your thinking is of the devil. There's no other way for sinners like you, like us, to get back to God. There's only one way to get to glory. This is the road to heaven, Jesus, our great leader, says. I only get there, and you only get there by my death. And then Jesus goes even further. He he shocks the disciples even more, because he doesn't just say that he needs to go and suffer and die. He goes on to say right after our reading Uh, Imagine hearing this for the first time because we get too familiar with it. He says in verse 34 If anyone would come after me, disciples, uh, anyone here, if you want to join Jesus on his road to glory, well then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross is something that we've gotten familiar with and comfortable with, even as jewelry. They wouldn't have been comfortable with this. The cross was a, a torture device. This must have sent a shiver down the disciples' spines. That their Lord Jesus, the long awaited Messiah, would be crucified? That they too, as his followers, have to take up their cross? Does that imply they might be crucified too? We know that later Peter would be crucified for following Jesus. This is the road Jesus is leading them on. This is the road to glory. This is the road back to God. They thought they were following a great triumphant king. But Jesus says they're actually following, at this point, a suffering servant. The disciples must have spent a lot of time thinking and discussing what this could possibly mean, what Jesus is talking about. This shatters their expectations. And then Mark tells us six days later, at the beginning of our text, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, as he did more often, selecting those three. He took them up a high mountain, likely uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, It's a few hundred meters taller than Mount Chem. And though we don't know for sure, uh, it sounds like that is likely where they went. And it also sounds like it was likely at night. Luke tells us that Jesus went up there to pray, and it was probably getting dark, getting late. Because Luke also tells us the disciples got tired and fell asleep while Jesus was praying. And they awoke to something Extraordinary. A great confirmation that, yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, he is the leader who can bring us back to God. While Jesus was praying, something happened to the way that Jesus looked. Mark simply says he was transfigured. Literally, his face, was praying, changed. How did it change? What did it look like? We have no idea. It seems like it was beyond description. The Greek word is an interesting one. It's metamorphosis. That's a word that we don't hear much. Maybe the kids around here remember it from school. Metamorphosis. Uh, when I hear that word, it only makes me think of one thing. A little caterpillar being transformed into a glorious butterfly. Well, Jesus here experienced a metamorphosis. Peter, who, remember, is the one telling Mark uh, all about these things. He, he struggles to put it into words. Jesus was changed. In another place, Peter says, they beheld his majesty. Luke says Jesus' face shone like the sun. We're told that even his clothes shone with an indescribable brilliance. It was inhuman. It was otherworldly. It was divine. Peter tries to explain. His face was just different. His clothes were whiter than white can possibly describe. We get a picture of what we hear of God in Psalm 104, that he wraps himself in light as with a garment. This is our Jesus, our Messiah, the one that we know, that we love, that we hear of each week again, the one that we trust, the one that we pray to. Here is he in his glory. The disciples are just getting a glimpse, a little sight of how glorious Jesus is. And this is a great miracle. Though I like what one commentator says about this. The, The greatest miracle here isn't that Jesus' glory shines through at this point. The far greater miracle is that the rest of the time on earth, Jesus' heavenly glory was concealed. The second person of the Trinity entered this world his glory veiled. And here the disciples get a peek at who Jesus is and who he will be when he's raised in glory. They get a glimpse of the Christ they were looking for as a conquering, triumphant king. More than that, they get a glimpse of Jesus Christ as the one they had all been waiting for, the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. As you might know, the Old Testament is referred to by Jewish people as the Law of the, and the Prophets. Well, who do they see here with Jesus? Moses, the writer of the law, and Elijah, a great prophet. Moses and Elijah are here representing the entirety of redemptive history up until this point. They're showing that this is what, or rather this is who, everything, the whole world has been waiting for. Everything was pointing towards this man. And now here's a very common question. I wonder if you thought of it yourself. How did Peter, James, and John know that these were Moses and Elijah? Fair question. I have no idea. Some say that God revealed it to them, or maybe they introduced themselves, if you can picture that. One preacher says, for all we know, they were wearing name tags. Regardless, what Peter, James, and John do know is that this is incredible. Incredible. This is more likely. They're terrified. But this is is what they wanted. Luke tells us that Elijah and Moses, though, they looked like they were going to leave. And so that's when Peter speaks up in our text. He says, teacher, this is so good. This is really good. All the talk of suffering and death for, for Jesus and for them, that, that's not what they wanted. This is what they wanted. Jesus, this is awesome. Your glory. Getting to be with these heroes of the faith, with Moses and Elijah. Jesus, this is wonderful. Peter says it's good we're here. And look, Peter is calling their attention to the fact that they have the dream team of leaders here. This could bring them to glory. And so Peter says, trying to keep things going in this direction, he says, Jesus, let us serve you. Let us make each of you tense so that you can stay. It's so wonderful to be with you all. Don't leave. It's so frightful. yet so wonderful to just get this little taste of the glory of heaven. And this would have been amazing, wouldn't it? Can you even imagine? And the good news, brothers and sisters, is this is just a glimpse of what is to come. I love how Klaus Skilder puts it when he comments on this passage. He he says that here God is opening the door, just a crack. Just so a little bit of light shines through. What a privilege to be able to see just a glimmer of the glory of heaven, the glory of God. Uh, Although we know that this is just a tiny foretaste, but Klaus Skilder mentions someday for all of us, for each of us, The door will be flung wide open. And we'll see Christ in all of his glory. Here they get a glimpse, but nothing more. Peter tells us that for now, we too, we see, but a dim reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Someday we're told in John's first epistle, someday we shall see him as he is. And even more remarkable, John tells us, and we shall be like him. And we don't know exactly what that will look like. But C.S. Lewis famously says that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. What Peter, James, and John are getting here is just a little taste of heaven. A little glimpse of God's glory, uh, of Jesus' glory, and of their future glory as well. And they want to hang on to it. This is where they want to go. This is where they want to be. It's where we want to be too. And, brothers and sisters, this confirms Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who can take us there. He knows the way. But as we'll see, the way isn't the way that we'd choose, it isn't the way that we'd expect. And we'll see that in our second point the cost of glory. So here is Jesus shining, robed in glory and majesty. And here he is with Moses and Elijah talking. What are they talking about? Uh, Don't you want to know? Well, thankfully, Luke tells us in his gospel. They're talking about Jesus' departure. They're talking about Jesus' death. They're talking about the cross. I told you already, this is a turning point in the gospel of Mark. From here on, Jesus has his face set right on Jerusalem. Right on his sacrifice of himself. So Moses and Elijah, they're here not just for the disciples, not just for us. They're here for Jesus. They're here to strengthen him, to encourage him, to equip him. Because what's coming ahead is going to be hard. You see, what the disciples didn't realize is that for Jesus to give them what they wanted... For Jesus to give them and us heaven to bring us back to God and his glory for that to heaven uh, happen for us to go to heaven Jesus was going to have to go through hell When they heard that fact the disciples hated it they couldn't comprehend it that's why Peter rebuked Jesus but Jesus tells them that this is the way For us to see Jesus in his glory, not just a glimpse, but the whole thing. More than that, for us to be glorified with him. For us to be able to forever enjoy being with Moses and with Elijah and with most of all, Jesus Christ forever. Jesus would have to endure the full weight of the cross. And Peter did not get that yet. He didn't understand that a far greater glory was coming not to hold on to this one. And he didn't understand that the only way there was through great suffering. He didn't want Jesus to suffer and he didn't want to walk that road either. But this event shows that this is the only way. This was the plan all along. Jesus knew that this was the plan. As we see here, Moses and Elijah confirm this is the plan. And God the Father too confirms here as well. As Peter himself admits, he has the humility to say he didn't know what he was talking about. So Peter says before Jesus and Moses and Elijah, this is good. Let me build some tents. Let's just stay here a while. And as he was talking, Luke tells us, as he was talking, a cloud came and overshadowed them, cloud of God's glory you read about throughout the Old Testament. And out of the cloud, God the Father hushes Peter. He says of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. Stop making your own plans. This is my son. This is the Messiah. Listen to him. Follow him. Jesus is the leader. Jesus knows the way. And in verse 8 we read that suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This was the plan to save sinners like us. The plan to save sinners like Peter and James and John. Sinners even like Moses and Elijah. Sinners who like us often are, are pretty dense and slow to understand. We see that in what happens next. Mark tells us that they headed down the mountain and Jesus said not to tell anyone what they had seen. Until so the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They couldn't tell anyone because they didn't really understand it yet. They were so far from understanding. And we can see that in what happens next. They, they listen, they don't tell anyone. But we read that they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They didn't understand. Or perhaps they even refused to understand that the way to heaven for them meant hell for Jesus. It meant that they too would be called to take up their cross and suffer for a little while. And this was the way to glory. And so they asked Jesus, why do the scribes and say that first Elijah must come? You see, these men knew their Bible. They knew their theology. Uh, They knew the prophecy from Malachi 4 that Elijah the prophet would come before the Messiah. And well, the Messiah was here and they saw Elijah, but only for a few minutes. So what's going on here, they ask. And, And Jesus tells them here and even more explicitly elsewhere, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them that the prophecy was fulfilled with the coming of John the Baptist. He had come, Jesus said. John the Baptist was here. And then Jesus tells them the truth of his road to glory as well. They did to him whatever they pleased, Jesus said. As you might know, the, re- the authorities rejected and opposed John the Baptist. They had him arrested. And later they had him put to death. And likewise, Jesus tells them, It has been written of the Son of Man, even already in the Old Testament, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. You see, Jesus still has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. He knew that there the same fate waited him. There the authorities would seize him too. And he knew that he would be arrested and they would do with him whatever they pleased. And this is why this story of the transfiguration is so vitally important. We need to get a glimpse now, right before what's about to come. We need a glimpse right now at this part of the story. Uh, That this truly is the Messiah. Jesus truly is the Lord of glory. The transfiguration shows already here that Jesus is loved by God. It shows that already here, everything is going exactly according to plan. And we need to see that here in this part of Mark. For us too, leading up to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, we need to see this here. Because from this point on, it's going to get pretty hard to believe that this is the Messiah. That this one is loved by God, his special, his beloved son. If Jesus is so great and glorious, why is he about to embark on such a tough road of humiliation and pain? If God loves Jesus Christ so dearly and uniquely and sincerely as his son, why will Jesus soon be crying out, Not even my father, my father? Why will he be crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This past week, a friend shared a beautiful quote with me from Octav- Octavius Winslow, uh, who write, once wrote, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for silver, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Why was Jesus' glory veiled throughout the rest of his ministry? Because he had hidden it. In a sense, he had laid it all aside for a time. At the Transfiguration, we get a glimpse of the bliss and glory ahead for James and John and Peter and for you and me. But more than that, we get a little glimpse, a little taste of the glory and bliss that Jesus left behind for you and me. As Jesus says in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, shortly before he lays down his life for us, John says in, uh, Jesus says in John 17, verse 42, Father, I want those you have given me, that's us, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That is Jesus' desire. Jesus wants his glory back, but not yet. He wants us to be with him where he is. He wants us to see his glory too, more fully even than this. And he doesn't want to go back until it's accomplished. It's, it's too far and speculative and wrong, uh, but some have suggested that on the mountain of transfiguration, the God the Father gave Jesus a choice. He asked them, do you really want to, or he asked Jesus, do you really want to do this? Do you want, or do you want to come back to glory now? Do you want to go back down that mountain and face unimaginable humiliation and pain, Jesus? Or do you just want to come back? And of course, we know that interpretation is wrong. Because God the Father didn't actually give Jesus any such choice. Because he didn't need to. The plan was set. God the Father knew the plan. God the Son knew the plan. They knew what they wanted to do. Jesus intended to suffer. He was willing to die. He was resolved to be tortured and killed so that you and I and all who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus knew that was the cost of glory. Not just of his glory, but the cost of our glory forever. And so in this story, Jesus is teaching the disciples and us a lesson as well. If we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ and we want to enjoy his future glory, we have to walk the same path he walked. We have to walk the road of suffering too. As Jesus says, we already heard it earlier. If you want to be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And this is wonderful news for us because we don't have to uh, earn this glory. We don't have to pick up Christ's cross. Christ already earned this glory for us. But it's very true that we're called to live here in this sinful world for a time to suffer for a little while. You might have realized that we heard that over and over again uh, in the the past past few weeks uh, with the professions of faith. The form ends uh, with these words from the Apostle Peter himself, from his letter. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And these sufferings, for a little time, they're very real. I'm so thankful that the Bible never minimizes suffering, does it? God never minimizes our suffering. He knows that many people, even many people here today, are suffering. They're they're taking up their cross daily. Many people are suffering with health concerns, either their own or of loved ones. Many people are suffering with the loss of loved ones. Some are suffering with uh, addictions or anxiety or depression or with chronic pain. We all suffer against sin and the devil and its effects. And the sufferings in this world are brutal. And God knows it. Jesus Christ knows it. He's a high priest who sympathizes with us and our weakness. He too was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And Jesus' followers know it too. Uh, that suffering in this life is very real. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. He, he writes that he shared in Christ's sufferings. Uh, he knew suffering very well. If you know about the Apostle Paul, uh, he was arrested multiple times in prisons that weren't very cozy. Uh, he was beaten. He, he was persecuted. He was shipwrecked and many more things. Yet Paul, looking back at the weight of these sufferings. What does he write in Romans 8, verse 18? These immense sufferings. Paul looks at them and says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So for now, we're left on this road of suffering. But the comfort here is that the glory to come will certainly be worth it. So how are we to go on now down this road of suffering? And how are we to follow Christ on his road of suffering so we might be with him in his glory in a short time? The glory that he won for us. Well, God's words here are very clear. What does God say in this passage to Peter and James and John? Because Jesus is equipping these men to lead others on the road to glory. And what they need to do, Jesus or God is extremely clear. He says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is what they needed to do, and what we need to do as well is listen to Jesus. What they need to do, and what we need to do, is to trust in him. We need to put our faith in him. We need to repent and believe in him. We need to just give our life entrust it to him. And then, with his help, follow him. This was the plan all along. This really blew me away, considering again how already in Moses' day, 2,000 years or something before uh, what we read in this passage, already in Moses' day, God told his people through Moses, this was the plan. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, From among your own brothers. You must listen to him. A missionary once told a story that really helped me to envision this in my own mind, what this looks like. He told me that once on the mission field, they needed to cross a raging river. And many things and even many people had been carried off by this raging river in the past. There was only one safe way across, but it wasn't easy. And the path wasn't clear. Getting across on your own was hopeless. But they weren't on their own. There was someone who knew the way. He knew exactly where to step through the river. And he would lead them. And the others, they could follow behind you. And so imagine you're right behind the leader. And your family, they're right behind you. What's the best thing you can do to lead your family? Well, you look at the leader closely, and wherever the leader steps, you step exactly. And then you look back, and you make sure, and you help your family do the exact same thing. That's what the disciples are called to do. They're called to lead Christ's great church, but they're so incapable on their own. That they get a glimpse of Jesus' glory here, confirming that, yes, he's the one who knows the way. And now they're called to listen to him, to follow in his footsteps, to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus. Thankfully for them and for us, the hard work of salvation is done. Jesus paid and accomplished what we never could. But now he says, take up your cross and follow me. So let's listen carefully and follow as carefully as we can. Because this is the one, the only one, who knows the way back to God who knows the way from suffering to glory. Jesus is the one who will lead us through the suffering and show us a place that's not worth comparing with the suffering, with the unimaginable glory that Christ won for us. This is Peter's point in 2 Peter chapter 1. You should maybe read it later, because there Peter references what he saw on this day in the transfiguration. He says there, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. On the holy mountain, we heard the voice of the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter is writing about this experience to people who are suffering, people undergoing persecution. And what's his point? Well, he goes on to explain to them that they too have the very word of God, the word from God's own mouth, to lead them in the way they should go. He says that we have the word of God more fully confirmed, to which you all do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. For in the Bible, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have the very word of God, the word of Jesus Christ, welling up to eternal life. If God could speak from heaven and tell us what he wanted us to do, what would he say? Listen to him. The instructions are the same. He is the perfect leader. He's the one who's able and willing to bring us to an unimaginable glory. Even though for him, it was a road of suffering. Suffering far worse than anything we'll ever know. It cost him even descending to hell to free us from our sin and guilt as we're about to celebrate, the Lord of glory, he gladly gave his body to be broken because it was the only way of bringing you and me with him to his glory, to glory such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. Amen. Let's sing in response the first three stanzas of hymn three. Bye. Uh-huh.